let's open our Bibles to first for actually to Titus, Titus chapter one, and tonight we'll begin in verse five. It's my intention to to go to the end of the chapter in verse sixteen tonight, time permitting. Titus chapter one will begin in the fifth verse. In this, the rest of this chapter, you're going to see a contrast. At least this is the overlay that I'd like for you to look for. A contrast between the character of the elder who is uh, performing his duties and has the character that God prescribes, and the, the contrasting character of those who are the false teachers. There's a comparison and contrast here that, that pivots between verses 9 and 10. I think you'll see it as it happened. But, happened. but this, this chapter is largely about leadership. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower said the following. He said, In order to be a leader, a man must have followers. And to have followers, a man must have their confidence. Hence, the supreme quality of a leader is personal integrity. Without it, no real success is possible, no matter whether it is on a section gang or on a football field, in an army or in an office. If a man's associates find him guilty of phoniness, if they find that he lacks forthright integrity, he will fail. His teachings and his actions must square with one another. The first need in a great leader, then, is integrity and high purpose. Although it has been accomplished, organizations rarely rise higher than the quality of their leadership. It would appear that the church, or churches rather, in Crete, must have been suffering from a lack of quality leadership because Paul placed Titus there to lead them toward a life that would be a faithful expression of the doctrinal standards that they'd been taught. Read verses 5 through 9. This will sound somewhat familiar to you, having just been through 1 Timothy, but read along with me. Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains. And appoint elders in every city as I directed to you. Namely, if any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sword gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. Titus, like Timothy, served as an agent of the Apostle Paul with apostolic authority, with delegated apostolic authority. Timothy wasn't an apostle like Paul was, but Timothy was an agent of Paul, so he carried that kind of of authority, he was in a position of authority over other local Christians and other over more than one local church. That's not the case today. We have no apostles today. There's one pastor per one church, or maybe one pastor per one church in five different locations. I don't, I don't know, but but whatever, it's got to be one pastor for one church. You start getting a whole lot of different churches out there. You're starting to to get off uh, away from the biblical model of. Um, church organization. The public reading of this epistle would have helped the Christians recognize Titus's authority and then submit to Paul's instructions that were given through Titus. You see, you see the chain of command there. Paul to Titus to the elders of the churches and then to the people. There's no question that the churches in Crete needed 
organization. This, this word for organization in the Greek text means to cause matter, matters to be ordered in the correct manner. There is, a, there is an orderliness that should be present in a local church. Things shouldn't be done randomly. Things should be done in a structured way, in an orderly way, which gives people the best possibility of worshiping well. In some churches today, there is no order. It almost seems like we've gone back to the church of the Corinthians in Paul's first letter. And there's disorder. There's, there's confusion. There are people, a lot of people speaking at once. A lot of people talking to people, dancing in the aisles or anything. I've been in special services in churches like that. It is not orderly. And while an individual may think, I had great worship today, for the group, for the, for the corporate worship, it's poor worship. So if you want to dance for Jesus, dance for him. You just don't do it in the aisles while the pastor's preaching. Do it at home. Um, it might be a little better. Well, the churches in Ephesus, remember where Timothy was ministering, had been in existence for some time. The churches in Crete were relatively young by comparison. And so Paul calls here for an organizational structure that is firm but flexible at the same time. The New Testament gives general principles for church organization and government, but the New Testament does not specifically prescribe a particular form of church government. Did you hear that? The New Testament gives overarching principles for organization, but the New Testament does not prescribe a particular form of church government. That that is why, in my view, you have so many different churches that are good churches that have chosen different types of organization in their church. Because the New Testament is not specific about its prescription. We don't know how many churches there were on the island of Crete, but Homer, who lived in the 9th century BC, referred to the island of Crete as the island of a hundred cities. This was a long time before Paul writes this, but at least 900 years before Paul writes this, there were at least a hundred cities on this island, which means that it was a fairly populated island. It's impossible also to know how many churches, little home churches, were in each particular city. But apparently the population was fairly large and the church was growing in Crete, growing but disorganized. Paul, so Paul says, for this reason I left you, Titus, in Crete, that you might set it in order what remains. Now that little phrase, what remains, is a little a little confusing. Paul doesn't get real specific about what remains. Paul had been through there. He had set up some order. There was something left over for Titus to do. One of the things that we know that was left over for him to do was for him to go to each town and appoint elders or pastors or bishops, the same term is used interchangeably in the New Testament, in each of the cities. And then he says, appoint, again, appoint elders, plural, in every city, singular, as I directed to you. Some have used this particular phrase to insist on plurality of elders in a given local church, but that's actually going beyond a step beyond what the passage actually says. Read it carefully. He says, I, I, and appoint elders, plural, in every city, singular. I hope you caught that. In, in every city. It doesn't say in every church. We don't know how many cities were in, I mean, how many churches were in each particular city. The, the fact of the matter is, the New Testament definitely allows for, for plurality of elders, multiple, multiple elders, multiple pastors, or if you prefer the term bishop, multiple bishops in, in a particular local church, but it doesn't prescribe plurality. It allows for it, but it doesn't prescribe it. The larger the church, 
the more likely it is that God will place more than one elder or more than one pastor in that particular church. We discussed this a few weeks ago in our study of First Timothy, so I'm not going to dwell on that here except to say this. I've seen a mistake that young churches make, particularly church plants make, that are committed to a plurality of elders or a Presbyterian form of government. And there's nothing wrong at all with a Presbyterian form of government. There's nothing wrong with a congregational form of government. It's not so much the form of government. It's the character of the people that are in leadership in that form of government. Okay? You can have a, a wonderful form of government and poor leaders, and it becomes a poor church. One of the things that young churches do is they, they may be committed to plurality of elders, and they've got four men and four women and some children in the church. And since they're committed to that, they'll appoint three of the men elders. And then wonder why the church goes through Hades on earth for the first five years so that elder board rotates over and you get some people in there that are actually qualified to be in that position. I probably made that mistake too. You know, earlier on in our church, I, there was at least, at least a couple guys that, that were, that I appointed to a position of leadership in the church that I probably shouldn't have appointed them. But you live and learn and you, and you, you committed to a little bit more prayer the next time. Now, the larger a church gets, the more likely it is that God is going to bring gifted men into that area to spread out the pastoral responsibilities. But be careful, if you ever go to a church plant, be careful appointing someone just because you feel like you have to fill the position. That's not a good reason to appoint someone. A few weeks ago we went over this list, actually a list that's almost just like it. So it's, it's not my intention to, to cover this list in the same detail that we did last time. If you uh, uh, are, are interested here, then uh, uh, I, I would refer you back to, the, to those lessons if you want some more specific detail. But there are some, some things that we do need to point out here at least one more time. But let me, if you will allow me, let me insert this one comment, this one word of caution before we tackle the list again. This list that I'm about to summarize this list concerns the person who holds the office of elder, bishop, or pastor. And again, it's all one office in the New Testament. Those, those terms are used interchangeably. This list concerns the person who holds that office. If a man becomes disqualified from that office by virtue of something on this list, that does not make that man an outcast in the Christian community. It does not mean that he cannot participate in ministry. It doesn't mean that he's a bad person. It simply means that they are not to occupy this particular office. I hope you see that. Sometimes when I've taught this before in an academic setting, I'm, I would, would go through this list. Someone would raise their hand and say, Are you trying to tell me? You trying to tell me that if, if 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 this pastor did that, you're telling me that he can't be a pastor anymore? I said, No, I'm not telling you, that's what the scripture's telling you. You deal with that. Okay? I'm not trying to be smart with that answer, but that's you gotta figure out what the text says. This is from God, not from me. I didn't make this list up. It's a lot better list than I would have made up. I'm not smart enough to make this kind of list up. Being a pastor, I probably would have made a list up that's not quite this stringent if I could have done it. But this is the reality. But the point is, if someone is disqualified for whatever the categories here, the Christian community tends to dig a hole for them, bury them, stomp on them, and then walk off like they're not a member of the body of Christ anymore. That is not the point. 
It doesn't mean they're a bad person. They can confess that sin and they can be forgiven and God can give grace to them. But whether or not they can hold the same office, that's what this passage is talking about. There's some disagreement about it in the Christian community. Um, but not as much as you might think. These are God's rules, not mine. I don't apologize for them, and I don't intend to alter them or compromise them. I intend to obey that which my Lord has set in front of me, realizing that they will not be obeyed perfectly. I'm not before you feigning perfection in any way. There's too many people in this church that have known me for way too long for me to feign perfection. And that's perfectly fine with me. I don't brag about that, but it is a reality. Uh, the the first in the list is the idea of being above reproach. This means also to be blameless, not perfection, but above reproach or blameless. It means that the elder must have no obvious flaw in his character or conduct that would bring justifiable criticism on himself or on the church. Paul gives a, an amplification on this in the first part of verse 7. It does not mean perfection. Can I say that one more time? Just, it does not mean perfection. There's only one perfect minister that's ever lived, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't perfect. To be above reproach does not mean perfection. The only perfect minister is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. He's not pastoring an individual church. He's shepherding the entirety of the church. The second one, and the one that we spent the most of our time on last time, the husband of one wife, since we spent a lot of time on that, again, I'm not going to dwell on it, but I do want to, to uh, refer you to those lessons for review if you weren't here or perhaps you, you don't recall. But the most objective, in summary, the most objective, the most objective understanding of these words is to take them at face value. John, would you check on our temperature now? I think we're getting a little stuffy. The most objective understanding of these words is to take them at face value. At face value, there's a circle of interpretation that theologians have historically, New Testament authorities have historically seen in this passage, from a very broad interpretation to a very narrow one. The broadest interpretation is not polygamous. And that is very broad, and certainly it includes that. But is that all it includes? Most New Testament scholars would say, no, that's not all it includes. It includes more than just not just having more than one wife or girlfriend at a time. That should be obvious. That's, that's no call to high character. I hope you see that. Just to have one wife and not have a girlfriend or to have not multiple wives at the same time, that's okay, thank you very much. But that's not the highest qualification, seeing as how most of the pagans, while they may have girlfriends, they only had one wife at a time. That's the broadest, and it goes all the way down to um, uh, only married once. We recognize that Exceptions could exist, but the most objective understanding of the words is to take them as the man of one wife, the husband of one wife. There are exceptions. We mentioned a few of them, perhaps the widower, whose marriage bond has been broken by the death of the wife with no moral component whatsoever, unless, I, I joke, unless you're the one that killed her, <laughs> you know, or yeah, then, then there may be a moral component there. But, but otherwise, typically, there's not a moral component in the death of a spouse. We also recognize that perhaps, perhaps, uh, that it, it could include a, a pastor whose wife had abandoned him. Uh, that's happened before. There's some real famous examples of that happening in the Christian community. And who stays unmarried. That, that Technically speaking, they would still be the husband of one wife. She may be the man of many 
hus- a woman of many husbands, but it, she would, he would still be the man of one wife. But before we can start talking about exceptions, we have to establish the rule first. And the, the, the essential meaning of that passage is married once. Third characteristic is having children who believe. Um, in, in verse 6, the elder must have his children under control. That, the text actually could be translated either children who believe or children who are faithful. The context would, would probably lean toward the idea of children who are faithful. Uh, contextually, they should be obeying the, faithfully obeying the leadership in that home. And if your children don't do that, if your children don't respect you enough as an elder to follow your leadership in the home, why would somebody else's children respect you enough to follow your leadership? Do you see the point? So it does, and again, this is not asking for perfection out of your kids. Pastors' kids live in a fishbowl just like pastors' wives do, and, and I'm well aware of that. Uh, but no, no, uh, no child is, is perfect. But are they faithful? Again, this is also talking about children who are living at home. This is not necessarily talking about adult children who are off on their own. So having children who believe. Now there are also personal qualifications beginning in, uh, uh, in verse, the last part of verse 6, not accused of dissipation uh, or rebellious. In no particular order now, the, the list goes like this, not self-willed. This means that he's not arrogant, overbearing, not quick-tempered, meaning that uh, meaning the obvious he's not soon angry. It's also described as being uncontentious later on, in, or earlier on in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Not addicted to wine. This is something that also occurred earlier. There's nothing here that says a, a pastor can't have a glass of wine. Now, that's not something, I'm not, there's, no, there's no personal acts, acts to grind here. I don't particularly care for the taste of wine. But if, if a pastor wants to have a glass of wine, there's nothing that prohibits that. But addicted to it, abusing that. Is, is something that we have to watch. Not pugnacious. You know, a pastor shouldn't settle arguments by punching somebody. He can't be violent. It's not supposed to be a striker of persons. Not fund of sword gain. Here's one of the places where you'll see a direct contrast between the elders that are mentioned from verses 5 to 9 and the false teachers from verses 10 to 16. The false teachers are fond of sword gain, and they're certainly not above reproach. Hospitable which also occurred in 1 Timothy chapter 3, this word hospitable. Um, you know how sometimes you hear people say the ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. But that's not, if there weren't for the people, you wouldn't need pastoral ministry. Okay, I mean, that's just the reality. You can't just lock yourself in the room and, and study and then come out and then not have anything to do with the people that you minister to and, and be hospitable. This doesn't mean that you have, your house has to be constantly overflowing with visitors. But it does mean that you have to be somewhat of a people person, at least somewhat. Now, that's a a relative thing, but you can't be an anti-people person. Loving what is good, I think that that's obvious in meaning. Sensible, needs to be sober, sober sober-minded, self-controlled. The New Testament rendered this word prudent. Remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3, prudent? You have to be just, which means upright, fair, and equitable. You, You need to be devout. If you're calling upon other people to be devout, you need to be devout. You can't be pushing people from the rear. Say, this is what you need to do. I know I don't do this, but this is what you need to do. You know who sees through that faster than anybody else? Kids. Yeah. You, you tell kids, this is, I'm not going to do this, but this is what I want you to do. 
you know, I'm going to cheat on my income taxes, but I'm going to tear your tail up if you cheat on your test at school. Uh, there's a bit of hypocrisy there, don't you think? You know, I don't want you to cheat on your test at school, but I'm going to cheat on my time card at work and brag about it at the dinner table. No, or I'm going to, I'm going to cheat, cheat an investor out of their money. No, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. Self-control means disciplined and temperate. To do pastoral ministry, you have to be disciplined, particularly with regard to your time. There are also doctrinal qualifications that begin in verse 9 and go uh, throughout that verse. Holding fast the faithful word. It means an elder or pastor must be committed to God's truth. He conserves it and preserves it from dilution, deletion, and distortion. That is part of the job of a pastor. Able to exhort in sound doctrine. The way Timothy says, apt to teach, able to teach. But there's, there's, it's one thing to teach, it's another to exhort. That's teaching with enthusiasm. That's calling on people to follow you. That's blazing a trail and then saying, let's go this way. But you've got to be out in front of them for that, to, for that to have any validity at all. It is a battlefield out there. It's a spiritual battlefield. And there are spiritual bullets flying all over the place. And yes, if you get into the fight, you're going to get wounded from time to time. You're going to get tired, you're going to get thirsty, you're going to get muddy and dirty and fatigued, and you're going to, you're going to have arrows sticking in you ever, ever which direction, but when you get to the finish line, you're going to be awful happy that you participated in the battle. Bruce Perry Chaper put it this way. He said, those who are spiritual are blessed with a front row seat to witness the defeat of the enemy. Now, the fire is hot up there, he said, and I agree with that. I, I, I love the way that he used to write. The fire is hotter at the front than it is back at the back. But you get a front row seat. <laughs> That's a good deal. Able to exhort in sound doctrine. And here's number 17, the one I want to spend. This is the 17th of 17 characteristics. Able to refute those who contradict. Believers, all believers... This is you and me both. This is one of those things that's a principle for a pastor, but it has direct application to you as well. We are all called upon to defend the faith. We're all called upon to be able to refute those who contradict sound teaching. But I want you to remember the overlay. If you can't remember the overlay, this is one fight I want you to sit out. I'm serious about this. If you can't remember this overlay, please sit this part of the fight out. And that is that we're supposed to, we are called upon to speak the truth in love. It is so easy to get so frustrated with people who aren't speaking the truth that we end up becoming angry with them. There was a church up in, well, I won't say which city, some of you may know, but, but up in northeast Texas recently where the pastor and two deacons got in a fist fight on the, the pastor's covered front, front porch about last year, about this time. That's not the way to settle anything. I mean, you ought to be able to sit down and have theological discussions without going out in the front yard and the pastor, or somebody asked me before who won the fight. Well, the pastor won the fight, of course. Who do you think won the fight? No, that's just a joke. That's a joke. You know who won, you know who won the fight? Seriously? You know who won the fight? Nobody. Because the church, as far as I know, came real close to shutting down after that. Nobody won that fight. Yes, we're going to have doctoral discussions all the time. If it's something that's important to us, we ought to. 
Boy, in the seminaries, you, you should see what happens in some of the faculty meetings. I was able to sit in on some faculty meetings when I was an intern for Dr. Langer. It was fun because I saw these people, big-name people, shooting back and forth, and they were having some really lively discussions. And then I thought, man, they don't like each other at all. Then I walk out there at the McDonald's later on eating a hamburger together, laughing and hooping and hollering. It doesn't mean that they weren't, that they didn't consider what they just got through discussing enormously important, but they were speaking the truth in love. There are very few, there are some, but there are very few doctoral issues that we need to be splitting the sheets over. We need to be discussing them. We can even, if you want to use the word, argue them. As long as you're arguing, as long as you're using the word argue like they do in, in the legal profession. Arguing a case. But that, that kind of arguing doesn't have to be contentious or cantankerous. It needs to be done in love. This doesn't make you a, a wimp either. It makes you spiritual because that's the way that it is prescribed for us to do. It is, it is part of the responsibility of a shepherd to refute those who are not teaching sound doctrine. In context, now, in the context of this passage, we're going to see now, here's the hinge verse, where we get into the people who aren't doing this. In the context of this passage, the people who were teaching unsound doctrine were doing it in that particular pastor's local church. Now do you, you see a slight difference there. We're not talking about somebody that's teaching something at another church, and you call them up and say, I hear, I hear this is what you're teaching, you go over and have a fight with them. This is talking about something that's being taught in your church. And the pastor has to stand for the truth. If you don't, you're, you're worthless as a pastor. If a shepherd who is, who is shepherding literal sheep saw a bear or a wolf or a lion or a panther sneaking into the sheepfold and then themselves hid themselves behind a rock, took a nap, and then didn't pay any attention to the baaing of the sheep as that, as that predator was attacking them, we would say that's not a very good shepherd. If a pastor, that's what the word pastor means, a shepherd point main, if a pastor sees this happening and then leaves the sheep to the wolves, to the doctrinal false teachers, that's not a very good shepherd either. So it's part of the responsibility. You cannot shirk it, and you cannot run away from a doctrinal dispute. But you have to speak the truth in love. But again, remember, this is the primary context here is within your own church within your own ministry. Sometimes we spend too much time trying to resolve doctoral disputes that are part of another ministry, another church's ministry. And we wonder why God doesn't seem to bless that effort. You know, we wonder why we're really uptight and frustrated. Because maybe maybe we ought to clean our own house before we go start complaining about how somebody else's house is a little too dusty. Okay. But let's let's look at the hinge now in the few minutes that we have left left the false teachers what you're going to see here is the polar opposite of what Paul has described in verse 10 for there are many rebellious men empty talkers deceivers especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sword gain now do you see the context are you, are you seeing how Paul's drawing the context in these are men that are doing it in the churches, in the churches presumably, that are being pastored by these shepherds or these elders. And they are not just a few of them. And Paul describes them as rebellious. Who are they rebelling against? They're rebelling against their own boss who taught the truth in the first place. If you know what the truth is and you don't teach the truth, you're rebelling against the one that gave you the truth. 
They're empty talkers. The things, have you ever heard, maybe spent half hour with somebody and they said they talked the whole time and you walked away thinking, man, that was a waste of 30 minutes. You know, not only did they bore me to death, I'm trying to figure out what they just said. You know, did it have any significance at all? Well, that's how false teaching is. You, you, you hear it, and in, in, in one sense, it's just like hearing a bunch of empty words. There's no power in them. They are deceivers. Don't ever forget that. In order to be a false teacher, by definition, you're going to be a deceiver. Now, there are people who are false teachers by accident. Well-meaning people that all you have to do is pull them aside and say, Hey, listen, I, I think if you would have looked at this passage, you might take that theology a little differently. The person that has humility says, Oh, man, I just didn't see that. I'll take care of it next time. That's not what this passage is talking about. This is not talking about honest mistakes. This is talking about people who are doing it and upsetting whole families... And Paul says they must be silenced. The, the, specifically, it says that they're those of the circumcision. These are probably Jewish converts to Christianity. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't be teaching in a house church. And Paul says they must be silenced. You can't just look the other way. You can't say, well, he's entitled to his opinion. Not if you're in leadership. Because leadership involves responsibility. That's why James says, let not many of you be teachers. Because as such, you shall incur a stricter discipline, a stricter judgment. If I let something go because I like you, and I do, I love all of you. I, I really do. That's, I'm not just saying that. If I let something go, though, that was harmful to the body of Christ, because I like you, my boss, with the capital B, says, Bruce, I don't believe I gave, that's not part of your job description. You can like them, but you still got to correct them. So guess who gets the discipline? If something don't go right in a church, guess who's the first person to get the discipline? Moi. And so that's why you, you got to hold the line. I know that frustrates some of you. I, I really do. Because you come up with something that you think is a great idea, and I say, we're going to hold off on that. You come up with something that's a, maybe a great theology in your mind, says, we're going to hold off on that. It's because I'm the one that's going to catch the first lightning bolt because I'm the one supposed to know better. And I may not be right all the time. I recognize that. And you don't have to amen that. I, I recognize it. <laughs> but I'm the responsible. At, at least, at least in our church right now, I'm I'm the primarily responsible party. There are others, but I'm primarily responsible. One of themselves in verse twelve. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, "Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons." It's not very complimentary about the people that you're writing to. And in fact, this was a direct quote from a, 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 a Cretan poet by the name of Epimenides, who lived about 500 years before Paul. This is a, an actual line from one of his poems, and it received wide acceptance in the Greek word, world as being true. In fact, just like the city of Corinth was so morally corrupt that the, the name Corinth, uh, Corinthianosomai, became a verb synonymous with fornication, how would you like the name of your city to become a verb synonymous with fornication? That was, that's, that was the name, the word Corinth in the ancient world turned into a verb was a bad word. It's the same way with Crete. If you were to, um, I guess, Cretize, you would be someone who was a liar and a cheat. So instead of saying you're lying, it says you're, you're Cretan. Now, that's not a very good reputation to have. So what Paul's saying is just simply that the false teachers are falling into that kind of reputation. It's, instead of being separated from it, out from it, removed from it, like the Christian community ought to be, they're part of it. 
When Paul says he doesn't pull any punches, that testimony is true. That is typically what a Cretan is like. They're liars and evil beasts, lazy gluttons. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. Watch. Everybody watch. I know you're tired. Church discipline is never designed to hurt someone. A rebuke is never designed to be punitive. It's always designed to be corrective. The only reason you set someone down and and have a very serious talk with them is to restore them, not to send them home crying. You, You rebuke them in order to help them. That's why he says, reprove them severely. Why? So that they can be sound in the faith. Not paying attention to Jewish myths, commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Very much like what Paul said in 1 Timothy. In verse 15, to the pure all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. The commandments of men, in verse 14, that Paul says we're not to pay attention to, involve abstaining from certain foods. We learned that in 1 Timothy. Paul reminded his readers that the pure in heart, to the pure in heart, all things, including certain foods, are pure or clean. However, the impure in heart spread their impurity wherever they go through their words and their deeds. Now are you seeing what I introduced in the beginning? You have the elders who had a certain behavior prescribed to them. And that behavior is above reproach. Now, in, in between verses 9 and 10, there's a hinge where he switches subject to false teachers who are the polar opposite of everything that they're supposed to be. The false, look, at, look at verse 16. They profess to know God. A false teacher has to profess to know God. Or who would listen to him? You've got to say all the right words. You've got to dress the right way. You've got to act the right way. I mean, in terms of your a superficial external performance, of course they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him. And their deeds here is, at least primarily, their teachings. What That is the deed that's in view. Being detestable and disobedient, worthless for any good deed. Not a great description. But interestingly enough... These false teachers had a following. If it weren't for the fact that they had a following, there's no need for Paul to write this. If nobody's listening to him, why would he write it? But a following does not validate a ministry. We need to be loving. Probably a lot more loving than we generally are toward those who disagree with us. That's a fact. But the bottom line is for a elder, pastor, or bishop to fail to silence those who are in error, that's not loving. That's disobedience. Well, next time we'll have some things said about older and older men, older women, and how they are to function together within a local body. But we're out of time for tonight, so we need to save that for next week. Father, we are appreciative of your divine prescription. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have stepped outside of that veil in front of it, and while you haven't revealed yourself to us totally, you have revealed yourself to us perfectly in a way that you were meant to be understood, you desire to be understood, 
understood. And I pray, Father, that we would take this divine self-revelation seriously and never take it for granted. And, Father, may we spend some time considering your divine self-disclosure, what our responsibility is in view of it, and take it seriously, and under the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, become obedient to it. And, Father, as we go our way, I pray that you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace. Mercy upon us, for we're asking in Jesus' name. Amen.